Hi, Caleb. Hey, Mike. How are you? I'm doing okay, I guess. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty well. It's pretty chilly here, but it is uh, horrible. It is unseasonably and unjustly cold. Yeah, we're complaining about forty degree weather, but uh, yeah, it's not 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 normal for uh, the Bay Area. So uh, yeah, I didn't move all the way out here and pay these obscene rents to have to deal with cold. This is exactly. ridiculous. <laughs> we I feel like the heat. We had an agreement, and my contract's being violated here. I'm I'm very unhappy. What are you drinking though? Uh, tonight I am drinking a Brooklyn. Oh, somewhat topical as as the listeners will see later. Um, oh, it's very close to ordering or making a Brooklyn. It's tough. It's tough because you, you it requires a, a mere pecan, which you can't get in the U.S. They don't import it. Uh, so I had to change Bootleg. it up. I, I well, I, I used a little uh, somewhat stale chinar. Um, it's okay. It, it came out okay. I don't know. Substitutions mm. are always tough. How yeah. about you? What are you drinking? Well, I got an early hol- Christmas gift of uh, the Death and Company book. Oh, that's so. A good one. Yeah, so I made a uh, 202 steps, which is very similar to the Brooklyn. It's a uh, quarter tangerine muddled with uh, bourbon, uh, orange bitters, and simple syrup. Oh, that sounds very uh, citrusy. Yeah, it's good and uh, pretty mild for a bourbon drink. So, uh, Excellent. You nice can use fresh the, orange uh, juice. You can use the Death & Company book. They have a lot of really good punch recipes in there, too. So for the holidays, know, you can make so some much punch. Mo- so many more alcohols I need to get. That book <laughs> is intense. <laughs> that is a tough one. Yeah. I also realize I've been making ice the wrong way, so I've got a lot to learn. What do you, how are you making it the wrong way? Well, they want you to boil the water first. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. And also, if you want clear ice, um, this this is a nice tip for all of our listeners as well, except for the ones who skip this part and they won't get this information. Uh, if you, you want to put it inside a small cooler, so put your ice cube tray inside a like small, uh, like a cooler that you would use to keep drinks cold, like get one that fits into your, fri- into your mm. freezer and put your ice cube in there and then it'll freeze from the top down, which will actually cause it to be clear. A turducken of the freezer. Yep. So you, and you, you probably want to use somewhat, um, either distilled water or you could boil your water. Um, I don't know, but uh, the big thing is, is putting some sort of insulation around it so that it freezes from the top down and you get nice, beautiful, clear ice cubes. I have a a sphere ice cube on my list, so we'll we'll see if that, uh, if that Uh, comes through for my family. I don't use those very often. I use the, sometimes I use the big cube ones, but mostly I have, uh, the silicon, um, ones that I got off of Amazon that are quite nice. They're like mm-hmm. inch and a half or so. They're yeah, kind of I have those. Those are my mainstays, and I've got the King Cubes for the the double rocks glass drinks like this one. For the uh, the adult King of Industry beverages. Yeah, the, the two or three inch, you know, big ice cube. Or, <laughs> they're fun. <laughs> All right, good talk. Well, a little bit more on the booze, which is good. We're coming into the holiday. So um, this week in, in a uh, part two uh of of last week a little bit we're going to be talking about tesla's stores and galleries and their distribution to customers since last episode we spoke a lot about how dealerships work in the united states and some of the uh challenges that they present for companies like tesla and now i thought we could zoom in and go talking a little bit more about what their actual stores are that they have subsequently opened here in the u.s and and um, elsewhere around the world and uh so yeah so does the um we we mentioned that a lot of the last episode was very united states specific uh with all of the weird regulations that we have here and the sort of uh well yeah the the highly regimented uh auto industry uh dealership network if we're talking about what tesla's doing today and they're selling in the u.s and around the world are they applying 
the same technique everywhere they go or are they tailoring it to the different countries? Yeah, they're actually using a very similar uh, store setup um, across the across the world. And that setup and general concept has evolved from their very first store to what they're doing now. And so, yeah, we'll talk about that through uh, through sort of the, the chronology and, and some of the interesting people who've popped up along the way on Tesla's side and sort of what the goals are for the store. So cool. you know, the, the very first store opened in 2008, um, and it was in Los Angeles in Santa Monica. Uh, oh, was it just selling the Roadster? Yeah, so it was just selling the Roadster. Um, so they, they had this store, and they had a, a little opening party and... Uh, Auto Week came, and I thought one of their early quotes from from their uh, their coverage of the store was interesting. They said, uh, "I quote: Tesla store looks more like a cool ad agency or hip restaurant than a car dealership. <laughs> its industrial look features poured concrete floors, exposed beams, and ductwork, mirrored front glass, and planter boxes filled with horsetail stems. The service department is out in the open to allow customers to see what is going on with their cars." It cost $2 million to make, and the goal was to have a, quote, non-traditional automotive experience based on the Apple Store concept for consumers. Um, so there was a service center in the store? Yeah. So they had sort of a double-wide store, and, and one part of it was the uh, where they had a Roadster. And at that point, they only had two production Roadsters, and uh, they had a waiting list of the 600 or so. Um, and oh, you mean only two vehicles, not two, yeah. like, models? Oh, no, they only had two made at that point. So they started the stores extremely early um, relative to having cars in people's hands. Yeah. So, so I didn't know. I thought I sort of had in my mind that the stores started popping up around the Model S. So that was um, a good reminder that they had that extremely early on. And, uh, and they started right in a very high profile Santa Monica Boulevard um, right next to some high end uh, fashion companies. And um it was relatively small, a couple thousand square foot store. Um, so it basically had space for one one car. And uh, yeah, they had the service center. And one of the things that they pointed out in some of the interviews they did was, if you think about it, an electric car doesn't have any oil uh, and all the other fluids that are going to spill out of it. Um, and they're just generally cleaner. And there's no fumes. So they didn't have any issues having the cars uh, be in the same physical space as they had the the customers uh wandering around uh so that was sort of a neat uh a neat thing they pointed out very early on that's so more uh, like was, a genius bar than a than a mechanics garage yeah and i think that's a it's really interesting that they the, the press picked up on their their desire to be sort of apple-like because after they had opened some of their first stores so they they sort of opened the la store and then they decided to open the next door at stanford in san francisco uh, in the San, sorry, in Palo Alto, in the San Francisco Bay Area. <laughs> That's our home store. That's our home store, and um, and they opened a few more stores, and then uh, they in 2010 they hired a guy named George Blankenship, and he had 20 years of experience at Gap. Um, he was opening 250 stores a year when he was at Gap. Uh, he was in charge of the store and design and construction uh, for all of Gap worldwide. So he had quite a lot of experience opening retail stores, but not cars, not car dealerships. You know, Gap was sort of the paragon of uh, yuppie uh, <laughs> retailing uh, probably in the not 80s. A lot, probably not a lot of freestanding stores either, too. Probably a lot of more like mall and, and shopping gallery type stores. Yep, yep. And definitely thinking about sort of uh, 
rent and efficiency for that sort of uh, model uh, different than than car dealerships. And uh, I, I don't believe Gap had had commissioned salespeople. Um, and so, but then, also a San Francisco company. Yes, true. Uh, and I think that's probably why he was here. Um, and then Joy Blankenship left Gap and he went to Apple and he spent six years at Apple and he was the vice president of real estate for Apple uh, and in particular Apple retail. Um, so he worked on uh, there in the very early days of Apple retail in the 2001, 2002, 2003 sort of era. Oh, so pre-iPhone. Yes, yes. He, would, he, he joined, I guess, in 2004. Um, so he was there a few years after they opened their first store because Apple opened their first store in Virginia, I believe, in 2001. Uh, there's a video of Steve Jobs doing a tour of that on, on YouTube you could watch. It's sort of funny <laughs> seeing all the boxed software was the most uh, all striking that, All the striking plastic part. computers, too. Yeah, and all the plastic computers. Um, but strikingly very similar. Um, and so he, he worked there and was um, really influential in, in moving Apple outside of North America. So he worked on a lot of the Asia, Europe, and, and, um, uh, and, and um, elsewhere, <laughs> thinking Australia. <laughs> there really aren't too many. Other, I don't think they ever ha- opened up on, uh, in Antarctica. Yet. Um, not yet. <laughs> and, uh, and so he was then recruited by Tesla uh, in 2010. Uh, and he joined them as the vice president of design and development um, for their retail in setup. So when he came in, they already had some stores, but his goal was sort of to, they realized the stores were working. They knew they had the Model S coming out in about two years, but this was still Roadster days. Um, and they hired this this guy out of Apple who had been really instrumental in launching hundreds and hundreds of stores at Apple and obviously at Gap. And so they wanted to bring some of that magic uh, most likely the Apple magic of uh, how do you take a brand that isn't necessarily super well known that eventually will introduce more and more mass market products um, and uh, and how do how do you figure out this model and uh, and so that's really instructive into thinking about how Tesla and Elon Musk thinks about what the stores are for. I think there's like very many parallels between what Apple did and uh, and what Tesla has decided to do. So. In thinking about that strategy from the very top in the very first blog post, talking about the retail stores, um, they, they said Tesla is reinventing the car buying experience and revolutionizing auto ownership. So from their point of view, they, didn't ne- they never saw the stores as a traditional dealership style, you know, <laughs> a little bit out, out of your way uh, setup and, you know, big, big lots um, with, uh, with a, you know, big open atrium type showroom <laughs> and uncomfortable chairs everywhere and, and those yeah, balloons little, like, and popcorn airmen that like dance around on the outside. Yeah. People spinning signs. Um, so one of the, one of the reasons, which is very similar to what Apple's goal with the original stores was, was they, they said very clearly publicly was that they, they felt that most people when they're buying a car, they've already decided what brand they want to buy at the point that they've decided to buy a car, which is a little bit of a tautology, but Essentially, like if you own a Mercedes or BMW or GM or Ford, uh, you're probably going to buy that car brand again if you had a good experience. And uh, you will probably go and do a bunch of test drives and, and do this. But you're going you're gonna to 
have a set of companies you're thinking about buying from that you've been conditioned over your lifetime <laughs> to to consider when you want to buy a car. Well, it's and interesting so, how it becomes part of people's identities too. Like uh, I occasionally will see like a Ford vehicle driving around with some sort of disparaging bumper sticker about Chevys or something that it's for some strange reason your automobile brand has become some sort of tribal identity and mm-hmm. I mean I guess there's probably some sort of human psychological uh, deep dive we could do there but let's 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 just move right on well certainly because i mean it's a uh, one tiptoeing into it just for a second and hopefully not offending anyone uh there i i remember that uh you know my grandparents they i think they only had bought mercedes once they had the opportunity to buy mercedes and they sort of felt like they had made it when they could buy a mercedes and they felt proud that they could keep buying them and they loved them and kept wanting them uh and then in my family, we had all sorts of different types of cars. We had Hondas and Chevys and uh, Dodges and minivans, all sorts of different ones. But I know there are definitely people who have, they're sort of a certain family and they like to have that type of car and they think of themselves that way. And I think part of it too is that it's such an expensive purchase. Yeah, It's it, it's something you want to make sure you feel as much affinity for as possible because <laughs> it sort or of you'll is one of your Sorry. Yeah. You'll retroactively like, you know, yeah. Uh, justify your 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 decision afterward yeah so so they needed to figure out a way to break that loop for a lot of people and very similar to what apple was trying to do where you know remember the gateway stores uh, and comp usas they were not necessarily in the super high traffic areas they were sort of on the strip mall areas or the second tier uh part of town and it was a destination they had the switch campaign for a while too like trying to like explicitly get people to kind of break that brand affinity yeah, and so they wanted to put the stores in places where people were already shopping so that you were there to shop for clothes or shop for housewares, um, already at the mall browsing around in a sort of consideration phase of just sort of having fun shopping and uh, and also in, in touristy areas uh, and so that people might just wander into the stores. And that worked well for Apple and, and Tesla decided to use a very similar strategy because they're introducing a new technology as well that people weren't familiar with. And so that's why they decided to put them in these very uh, relatively expensive uh, parts of town and in areas where traditionally there have never been car makers uh, opening stores. Uh, and so so that was really one of the big ones is how do you make sure you get into people's minds? And I remember when I first experienced uh, a Tesla store was when I moved out here to the Bay Area. And I remember going into one of the stores and, and it was... Uh, yeah, I was at the mall and I was like, what is this? And I had seen, I had heard of the cars and seen them in tech news, but to, to go and see one when I didn't intend to go to one uh, was, was really interesting because I just didn't know that they had a store there and I just sort of stumbled in. Where, <laughs> I was just on my way to J. Crew, and all of a sudden, hey, I could buy a sports car. Well, I could at least look at a sports car and start to get some excitement for it where <laughs> I, I, didn't, I don't just randomly walk into a Volkswagen dealership. You, know, you have to drive to one to go to one. So you have to go with a lot more intent. So how do you lower the barrier? You have to steal your reserves too and gird your loins to go in and be assaulted by salespeople as well. Like I feel like yeah. there's, a, there's a whole psych up experience to getting up the courage to walk into an auto dealership. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the oldest phrases for car dealers is like, people don't walk onto the lot unless they want to buy. Right. <laughs> That's like their their mantra um, to justify their tactics. We'll get to that. But um, so one of the other big parts of the strategy was how do you afford this high-end real estate if you have to have hundreds of thousands of square feet like traditional 
uh, dealerships require. And uh, they they decided not to have that much space. And one of the big reasons they don't have that much space is because they don't have car inventory at the point of sale. Um, and they also, the majority of the cars, the vast majority are purchased custom. So you can have a, four, a couple thousand square foot uh, store inside of a mall and, uh, and have it work where a Chevy dealership uh, needs to have their inventory somewhere because they've bought it all and they need to sell it to people and they don't build to order cars as the majority of their business. And so that's sort of a unique facet to the way that Tesla's built the business that allows them to use these uh, smaller footprint stores, still push a ton of volume through it. I think they're, they're, they're one of the highest grossing per square foot stores in many malls, and it's because they're selling very expensive products in a relatively small amount of space. So they're actually relatively efficient uh, and, and productive on a square foot basis because of the fact that um, they're they're relatively small and, and they sell $100,000 vehicles, but they uh, don't have the uh, inventory, and so they can afford uh, on a sort of a comparative basis having these much more expensive per square foot locations. I mean, they, they're in super high-end uh, locations. Right, right. And so uh, in these stores, like what is the... Uh what is the goal or the experience in these stores? It's, it's, I'm assuming there's uh, a vehicle there. Um, are they also like coordinating like test drives there? Like how, what is the, what is their sort of operation like? Yeah. So the stores focus on education as their primary goal. So if we think back, like the, the stores were at a time when the Roadster was just coming out and most people had never ridden in an electric car um, and weren't really familiar with them. And this is also at a time, remember, when uh, lithium-ion batteries were having a bad couple years with the Sony laptops exploding. Um, oh, right, yeah. And Even so, Apple had that thing where they would swell the bulge, up. The, the plastic yeah. MacBooks were kind of swelling up a bit. Yeah, so the, you know, people were not quite sure about the idea of having a car that was a bunch of batteries and electric and... So they, they wanted to focus on how do we teach people about uh, electric cars, the new technology, what, what's special about them, what's great about them, uh, what are the issues around charging, how are you going to cope with that. So it's less of an abstract concept at this point if someone can go in and see the vehicle and, and kind of see, I mean, you might see it in passing as you're out in the world, but you can sit in it and kind of experience it up until the point you're driving and kind of get yeah. the fact that this is a real thing. Yeah, exactly. I think it was sort of to make it make it real, make it something you could touch, um, ask people at the store questions. And obviously being uh, the Roadster in the very beginning, um, people aren't really going to be pressured into buying a sports car. Um, people who want sports cars know they want to get a sports car and, and so they need to know what makes it special. And so they, they really did focus on that. And then they had uh, the ability to do test drives um, once they had enough uh, inventory of roadsters. So they, they did do test drives, <laughs> but also you don't really offer test drives to sort of, um, a 20 year old walking in, uh, who wants to do a test drive of the, of the roadster. So they, they didn't necessarily do as many test drives back in that, in that day. Um, and <clears throat> after they f figured out that education was really primary, they also set out to make sure that for when the model S came out and they did a redesign of the stores, um, to, better accommodate having the sedan, which is going to be uh, more mass market, certainly still limited quantity, but uh, 
you know, tens of thousands. It takes up more square footage too. Right, exactly. And and also this was the first time they had the fully uh, skateboard sort of design where they had the batteries in the floor. Um, so this is when they eventually started introducing uh, the, the car uh, shell, <laughs> the chassis into the right. design of the store. Right. We haven't done the this promised Roadster episode yet, but yeah, the Roadster was actually a Lotus Esprit, was it? Um, a Lotus Elise or Esprit, yeah, one, okay. one of those. Um, and yeah, the battery they just did was, a retrofit of the electric motor and the battery. Yeah, so the battery's sort of in the in the back. Um, where the gas tank would be. The, yeah, and, uh, and so they, they decided they also didn't want to have salespeople on commission, um, and so they don't have commissioned salespeople. Uh, and so they have what they call product specialists, and uh, they are there to tell you about the car, answer your questions, and it's to the point where uh, there, there's a company called Pied Piper. Um, <laughs> yeah, so he, Mike's laughing. And uh, is this doing middle out compression here? No, they are. They're a real company. They they do research for the automotive industry, and one of their services is mystery shopping. And they'll go to dealerships for on behalf of the OEMs to find out how well their dealerships are doing. And they release a public report about how uh, well th- they're meeting customer satisfaction for people who want to buy buy a car for leads. And obviously, uh, they the OEMs want to see that their dealerships are doing everything they can to make a lead happy to want to buy a car, and you know, following up with them, giving them brochures. And for the past two or three years, Tesla's been at the bottom of that pack uh, as the least salesy of all the OEMs. Oh, okay, so that when you say at the bottom of the pack, meaning they're the least aggressive, least about, aggressive, yeah, yeah, okay, just reaching out, making contact, like yeah, yeah, that's exactly. Right. And okay. one of the quotes they had from the report was, uh, "I quote: Employees tended to act like museum curators because they were knowledgeable about the product, but they never asked for the sale, which is actually probably more in line with Elon Musk's vision for Tesla's retail experience." It's like, yeah. You're right. That's what they were hoping to do. And uh, I think that's what a lot of people actually actually want. And they then went on and just so to sort of frame how they thought about the world and how they're kind of uh, very much in, in line with thinking about auto sales in the way it's traditionally been done. They said, the Tesla situation is very interesting to us. Dealerships that sell proactively think of them as doing everything they can to be helpful to a car shopper. They uh, not only sell more vehicles, they also end up with happy shoppers. So uh, they, uh, they, they just sort of felt like, well, you won't sell as many cars. So you're not going to have as many happy customers because you don't have as many customers. So it's a little bit of a, a, a little bit of a logic fail on their part. But um, Elon Musk had tweeted that he was actually very happy that they were at the bottom of, their, of that particular ranking. It seems like, yeah, it seems like a better long-term play, better for the brand than having aggressive sort of, what do I need to do to get you into a car today kind of experience? Like no one, while that might actually sell more cars, possibly it's not really, I, no one really feels good about that. Yeah, I think there's a couple things going on. One is uh, you, a more expensive car, like a $100,000 plus sort of car is going to be an even more considered purchase and it's going to be a more educated purchase. So, you know, a couple hundred dollar discount today because my manager gave me the override may <laughs> not be the reason you're going to be swayed. What about the floor mats though? Are the floor mats included? They, they are, not the all weather though. Those are extra. Um, <laughs> one of the other big differences is that the Teslas, um, they don't haggle on the price. Um, there There is a price, you pay the price and that's it. And so the... 
tactics that many salespeople use to negotiate price in traditional dealerships are not happening at at Tesla stores. Um, so that removes one of the major components that the salespeople at most car dealerships spend a lot of time with. And then sort of the third big thing is in most dealerships, they're selling inventory cars. They're selling cars they have on the lot and they have a certain number they're trying to move because they have new ones coming in all the time. Where Tesla is is uh, is trying to sell custom produced cars and, uh, and so that they don't necessarily have the same pressure. And also it's going to take six to eight weeks in many cases to get your car. So the difference between getting it sold today versus tomorrow for Tesla isn't quite the same urgency. And I think they just take a longer view that um, they need to create demand for Teslas and they want people to want to buy it versus being sold the car. Um, I wonder how much of that will... So obviously they can't really put any pressure to get you into a car today because they don't actually have the cars today to get one into. Mm-hmm. But uh, as they grow to a point and their their uh, production capacities increase to a point where they could get you into a car today, I wonder if that would shift. Yeah, I think that they they they've they've obviously been increasing it a little bit. They do have some inventory cars, but they generally have detached the um, purchasing experience from the delivery experience. Um, I'd be curious if any of the listeners have had the experience of buying the car and having it delivered on the same day, if it was an inventory car. I don't know of any examples of that. Um, I, have, I have a friend that did, actually. Oh, really? The exact yeah. same day? Yeah, um, mostly because like one was coming in for test drives, and it happened to be almost close enough to what he wanted, so they just gave him that one. That's pretty cool. So he it decided was, was to buy it on the spot? Or, yeah, it was same day or next day. Yeah, That's pretty good. Yeah, at the Stanford store down here. Interesting. Yeah. So that's, uh, that's, it's not their standard practice no, very at all. Unusual, yeah. And, um, and so that, yeah, I think that will change over time as they have the, the model three, but I still think they're, they're not going to keep a ton of inventory. Their store setup is n- none of the stores are really set up to have that much. They, the only way that they could do that is they do have service centers in many of them. So you can imagine the store selling floor, and then they have a separate area when, uh, if you're an existing owner and you need your car service, you bring it in. But that's also where they will do the deliveries for folks who are who are picking up their car who don't want to pick it up at the factory. So this is not at the store locations, though, right? So that's interesting. Uh, in the very early days, they had a mix, um, but they would also open up just separate standalone buildings that would be service centers. So um, that you could get your car service, and they might not be a store available. Uh, for showrooming and test drives and things. But what they've been doing recently is actually creating these mega stores uh, that are uh, in the 40,000 square foot range. So going from the five or 6,000 square foot stores that were sort of their medium-sized stores of the past few years to now these sort of mega stores, which are actually a combination of store and service center and sort of micro offices. And so in those stores, they do have space for hundreds of cars uh, which are being repaired or fixed or serviced or delivered. Okay, so this just sounds like a regular car dealership. They are moving to a, a, a bigger size. Uh, they'll still be smaller than most car dealerships from the amount of cars they can have um, in the footprint. And they're still in relatively high-end spaces. So a couple examples, they, um, they like the Santa Monica location where they're at, which is only 3,000 square feet, so it, it's not one of their megastores, that space sold for $15 million last year. Um, so it's like a very expensive per square foot. Um, <laughs> and, and then there, uh, one of the other more recent stores in Brooklyn, 
is 40,000 square feet. Uh, and that store uh, is one of the sort of combo uh, stores where it's got the uh, service center, the, the general uh, selling floor where they can have the, the cars on display. Um, and they chose that one really particularly because it's really close to the Brooklyn Battery Tunnel. Uh, to get in and out of uh, Manhattan easier. And it's actually like in an old um, uh, old shipyard brick building. So it's actually kind of a neat architectural space too. Um, yeah, it looks like a coffee roastery or some sort of hipster uh, business, craft brewery or, or something of of some sort. And and obviously is the reason why I'm drinking a Brooklyn tonight. Yes, yeah, there you go. And the one of the other, the biggest one in, in North America up until about, few months ago was in Montreal, which was 45,000 square feet. And now the largest one in the U.S. is uh, 65,000 square feet, and that's uh, Tesla San Francisco. Uh, it's the largest in North America, as I said, and it's a three-story building, um, and it's a former Chevy uh, dealership that was built in thir- 1937, uh, and it's on Van Ness, which is um, not the most foot trafficked area, but there are some other high end car dealerships right there. So that's probably their most dealership like location in the Bay Area. Um, and it's only a mile from the house of Prime Rib. So, you know, right. <laughs> you can get some Prime Rib while you wait for your Tesla to be serviced. Um, <laughs> and apparently it took them many years to, to find that one. And because they didn't have one in San Francisco, uh, even though they have a ton of cars. And so that was one of the requirements was that they needed one that could hold hundreds of cars because they, they do have so many customers who have cars in San Francisco. And I actually got to visit that store and got a tour of it. Uh, and it is, it is massive. Um, and the service center was empty because they had just done the end of the quarter deliveries. Uh, and they, so they had a whole bunch of pre-owned cars that they, they, they sold. And then they had a bunch of the cars that were being delivered. Um, but they have a lot of chargers in that service center and it's sparkling white, like top to bottom. Oh. And this is the one white epoxy floors. We had mentioned this one, I think when we were talking about solar city, was it because they had done a, a solar install on the roof of the building? Yeah. Yep. And, uh, so it's, it's been all retrofitted now and, um, you know, former GM dealership. So to your point, they are becoming more dealership like, but they're still retaining the high end store feel. And so I would sort of equate it to what Apple has been doing actually, where they've been going from those mall locations in the early days to now these huge multi-story locations that, um, like the Glass Cube and Fifth Avenue, which is an interesting basement store, to the really huge ones they're doing um, uh, overseas as well. So I think there's just a general trend in high-end retailing to have bigger and bigger flagship stores. Um, and Tesla certainly has a lot of use for that space. But they continue, because they have so many customers in cities, to want to build these sorts of locations in high-end cities where they have high median incomes and uh, you know, higher propensity to buy a Tesla. And do you know if they have any sort of plans to expand into less high-end real estate as they move in the next like year or two a little further down market with the Model 3? Yeah, so for, for comparison, um, you know, when they started, uh, they had just, a you know, at the end of 2012, they had 11 stores and nine service centers, so they were separate. Um, at the end of 2012, um, they had 32 stores, uh, a year later, they had 80, a year after that in 2014, they had 160. And at the end of 2015, they had 208. Wow. 
and now they're at around 265. They were hoping to get to 300, but it doesn't quite look like they'll get to, to 300. But they're sort of at a pace now of opening uh, one every four days. And so they are opening them in more um, uh, in, in cities that traditionally are not sort of the top 10 metro markets in different countries. So they are starting to move into slightly um, lower rent or lent, lower rent uh, areas, but they're also continuing to open up service centers, um, just where the population of cars are. And what's really special, obviously, for Tesla is they know where all the cars are because of the 3G connection and the maps. And so they they have an understanding of where uh, cars are and where service centers are needed. And what they've said too is that when they open service centers, uh, it creates more demand because people then know their car can be serviced because not many people are willing to drive hundreds of miles to a service center if they live in a part of the country or somewhere in the world where there's not service yet. And so Tesla's main focus recently has been opening stores um, and service centers in new countries. Um, And so they, you know, in the very early days, they opened London, um, they opened Japan, but very recently they've opened Spain, they've opened Korea, uh, and so the, they're continuing to expand globally for, um, in, in a more aggressive way than they are going really deep into uh, the U.S. You know, Montana still doesn't have a, a Tesla store. <laughs> that's, so yeah, I, that's I probably going to be a long one. wait. Probably a long wait, even though they do have superchargers. So um, speaking of superchargers, how does um, the supercharger network relate to stores? Like, are they... Is it independent or are there like superchargers sort of gathered near stores um, or is there any correlation at all? No, there, there isn't much correlation. I would say that the, the biggest correlation would be that uh, they enabled superchargers in areas where cars were being sold for long distance travel. So that's to say they did East Coast and West Coast uh, supercharging before they did cross country. Um, because they had customers on the West Coast and East Coast. And most people on the West Coast and East Coast are going north-south and not cross-country as frequently. So superchargers are not at dealerships or at the stores. Um, They do have the chargers uh, on site for um, charging the cars. Uh, A couple exceptions to that. There are some of the newer stores that are in um, more rural areas or sort of suburban areas will have um, chargers, uh, destination chargers, and sometimes superchargers. Um, so it, it has happened. Like the Fremont factory has superchargers, for instance. Um, I think a few of the newer stores on the East Coast have superchargers at them. But it, it's not really the uh, intention that every store has a supercharger because they really want to use the superchargers to enable long-distance travel. Uh, and so they're putting those on the, the highway corridors and not necessarily, you know, deep, deep in the city. Um, but most stores you can charge up because they have the destination chargers, which are the level two chargers that can sort of charge, you know, 25 to 35 miles uh, of range per hour versus the 150 miles per hour kind of are, level. And are those like Tesla destination chargers or is yep. that just because they are in like high-end retail establishments that are probably the first places to be putting those in anyways Uh, one of the big reasons they they have the tesla specific ones is because they're um because tesla has their own test drive vehicles they need to charge those as well and then they also need to charge the cars that they're servicing because they tend to deliver the cars full when you pick up your car from service 
So they have to charge them as well. And so some of those are on the exterior of the, of the building and they let customers use them uh, in addition to their own technicians. Oh, very nice. Yeah. One, one last thing on the, on the size of the store network. So they're, they're closing in on 300 or so worldwide. Um, so just for comparison, uh, in the U.S., uh, GM has around uh, 4,000 dealerships, 4,300. Ford has around 3,000. Chrysler has around 2,500. And Toyota is the fewest at 1,700, um, even though Toyota is, is one of the top sellers, um, going back to our last episode. And when you say that these uh, manufacturers have dealerships, again, this is referring back to our last episode, that they have franchise agreements with yes. independent dealerships. Exactly, yes. Whereas Tesla actually owns the stores. Yes, they, they own those uh, leases and they operate them themselves. So from a general market of selling uh, many, many different types of badges and different types of uh, branded vehicles, they're nowhere close to the density, uh, obviously. But uh, when you go a level deeper and you look at, okay, well, maybe they're not really competing with GM at this point. They're competing with Audi and BMW and Mercedes. Uh, then the picture becomes different. Uh, Audi has 280 dealers in the U.S. BMW has around 340. And Mercedes has around 300 uh, as well. So in that regard, they're not that far off. Uh, the majority of the stores are still in the U.S. for Tesla. So, you know, there may be around 200 or so, um, in the, uh, a little less in the U.S. So they're not that far off of the Mercedes, BMW, Audi level. Mm-hmm. Um but uh, I just wanted to point that out because it was, I didn't know there were that few BMW dealers actually. And, you know, that's over, what would it be, 30, 40 years of, uh, of penetration here in the U.S. And that's the level they think is appropriate for dealerships uh, to serve that market. Mm-hmm. So I think it sort of sets an upper bound on that segment of car. And, and even when you think about BMW selling three series, at $30,000 and Mercedes selling $30,000 cars. I think it sort of shows that Tesla probably will be further along than those guys in terms of locations, not that far from now. Um, So even though there are many people, maybe many who listen who haven't been able to visit a store uh, yet, uh, if you have a BMW or Audi or Mercedes dealer nearby, uh, you'll probably have a Tesla store nearby (laughs) at some point. Keep an eye out. Yeah, I think that's a pretty clear... Uh, benchmark. Like, I, I think they will be around that level. Is it going to uh, be kind of like how whenever you see a McDonald's, there will inevitably be a Burger King that springs up across the street? Yeah. Yeah. I don't think it will <laughs> certainly won't get to that level of penetration, but I think it's, it's similar to what sort of Starbucks did where they started in cities and then eventually they end up everywhere um, because everyone <laughs> wants that product eventually. Um, the sort of diffusion of it uh, takes time. Oh, so at some point we're going to have a Tesla dealership that's across the street from a Tesla dealership, just like Starbucks. I mean, I th- uh, one of the ways that's happened already actually is that they are now opening stores within a store inside of Nordstrom. So uh, some of the Nordstroms now have a little 400 square foot mini Tesla store inside of them, uh, and I've actually been to one. Oh, where uh, I want to see one of these. So it was at the Grove in Los Angeles. So oh. I was there over the summer. And I went into the uh, Nordstrom looking for it because I knew they, they had one. So it was in the back of the men's department. Um, <laughs> and uh, so, you know, there's blazers and socks and suits. And then there is a little bump out and it was a Model X. So it was tiny. It was 400 square feet. It had a Model X. It had two uh, Tesla employees in there and it had a Mac. 
and it was one of those bump outs where they have the store window facing the street so mm-hmm. there were people walking by as well and they could see the model x so um yeah you, they would let you you know reserve it and talk to them and that was a pilot that they had started a few months back and now they've opened another one in charlotte north carolina so Is there, do you know if there's one in the mothership nordstrom in seattle uh, no, not yet. So there's only those two, but uh, apparently, it if it goes continues to go well, um, they they plan to open more of them. So that may be a way that they open up uh, these stores and and penetrate a lot faster. Is these sort of little micro stores that are clearly the real estate's already there. They have a deal with Nordstrom, and it's only one one car uh, and uh, a couple employees. So. It definitely tells you something about the the crossover of the customer base at this point of uh, <laughs> Tesla customers and Nordstrom customers, um, some affinity there. Interesting. That I'd, I'd, yeah, I'd love to see that, but eh, I'm not. It's very to... small. You can't, I mean, that one is definitely different than the other stores. You, you, you are noticed um, when you're looking at the car because those two people in that little 400 square feet are really excited to see you. <laughs> <laughs> they, they, they are like hoping people will come in and talk to them because people are not there for the, the Tesla. Oh, they should put in a little uh, espresso bar or something in there too to try and make it a little less awkward. Yeah. So talking about the experience, um, I thought we could end with sort of dissecting or describing our personal experiences in the stores and some of the things we noticed that are unique or interesting about the Tesla stores separate from uh, dealerships we've been to. So um, maybe we can sort of rapid fire back and forth some observation, not necessarily rapid fire, but back and forth. <laughs> yeah, sure. I mean, we we actually did. I mean, we've both been to the Stanford store, obviously, but we did our test drives from different stores. There is another, yeah. there's a, uh, I think they took over an old Volvo dealership in Palo Alto. It's like right next door to the McLaren dealership to give you, to calibrate the uh, the area that they're in. Um, but that's the one that you went to. I uh, went to the Stanford one. Oh, no, your, no. Oh, so the Model X, I went to that one. You're right. Yeah, for your test drive, you went to the other one. I've done two test drives, so I've done them oh, in both geez. locations. Yeah. <laughs> they still yeah, haven't so- gotten a penny from me, though. <laughs> yeah well they, they that's yeah. not true you got oh, your, no, they your model did. three deposit oh, yeah you're right i forgot about that so that's for nice. for both of these uh we booked online right like i booked mine online and then i got i got to pick a much like getting a genius bar appointment i picked a, a date and time that worked for me and there were you know there were slim pickings available because i think they only had like two vehicles at the, or two x's at this point in time um to, to drive yeah when we did it we tried to do the x pretty early on i think that was one of our earlier episodes and um yeah yeah so they have a, a schedule online to pick and and uh set up your time and everything and for me i really enjoyed it because i didn't have to talk on the phone to anyone right. <laughs> um and i just don't really like setting up things on the phone i know what i want out of the test drive and i know what i'm doing so i don't necessarily need to chat someone up about you know, setting up an appointment and, and it sent me a calendar invite and all that. So it was really easy. Yeah. And they didn't, I, you don't get into like the calibration thing that the salesmen usually do. Oh, where, when are you going like, to buy? When, yeah. What's your you time frame? What's your budget? Like, you know, they're just trying to like suss out your, your validity, I guess. Um, so this was, there was none of that going on. Let's score the lead. How hot is this lead? Is it a Glengarry lead? Um, <laughs> ABC. So one of the things I think you notice when you walk into a Tesla store is that it is, uh, Red, white, and uh, pine. Pine, yeah. And <laughs> some of the new stores have a dark slate stone floor. Um, oh, interesting. I think the mall stores have the pine, uh, which is actually funny. It's very much following the Apple store, where the early Apple stores had sort of the pine uh, maple floors. 
and the new ones have stone. Uh, I think uh, Tesla has finally caught up to that uh, change that they've made. They've installed uh, the phone cracker floors. Yeah, the, the, the San Francisco store was um, was uh, stone, if I remember correctly. It was definitely not wood um, uh, and, and tile. So, um, yeah, it's definitely very uh, open. Uh, they have... Yeah, there was no, at least at Stanford, there's no real facade. Like the whole thing opens up onto the, I mean, this is an outdoor mall, um, but it it very much looks like an indoor mall where it's just a wide open facade of the building. Yeah. And that store in particular is right next to the Apple uh, store in the mall. And this particular one is all, if the mall is busy, the Tesla store is busy and they have (laughs) an X in the front. They have an S. uh, They are both open. Uh, people can just sit in them, play with them. And there are usually two or three families hanging off the cars. Uh, the Falcon wing doors are always getting some, some exercise. Yeah. And there's usually one or two Tesla employees standing around, standing nearby, uh, talking to people. They have iPads if they want to show you something, or if you have a particular question. Um, so they have the cars there. And I think what's, it's very, um, Maybe maybe it's just been my dealership experiences, but usually, especially when I visited, like um, I used to have a, a late model BMW and I remember getting a service every once in a while and I would have to wander around the store while I waited for them to even just see me. And it was so quiet in the dealership and no one was in there that I always felt so awkward even opening the door to any of the cars <laughs> because I felt like, and I would always I would always just sit in it and not put my feet in. And it just sort of felt very watched and uh, uncomfortable Um, and in the Tesla stores even though they're very expensive vehicles people are jumping like getting in them there's kids in there and it it doesn't feel bad to sort of play with it a little bit they've got the touch screens on Um, people are turning on the lights and honking the horn like just exploring the car in a way that people don't seem to do in in traditional dealerships at least that's been my experience yeah, yeah. I mean, part of that's probably because they are in shopping malls, um, so there's a lot of window shopping, I guess, going on. Um, but then in the in the Stanford store, they also have one of the uh, sleds there, the chassis. Um, so it's all stripped down, and they have uh, there's some video walls. I think there's some yep. stuff going on on the walls. They've got um, a wall of samples, uh, so like sample. Um, interior fittings and fabrics and stuff. So um, to give you like sort of a tactile visual look at what the different options are. Yeah, that that was something they introduced when George Blankenship joined and he did a video talking about that. And his their goal there was they had this online design studio, which is what they still call it, where you go and set up your car and uh, pay for it and configure it. And they wanted to create a, an analog version of that so that you could really get a feel for what your car is going to be like and you know picking a paint color uh most monitors are not tuned correctly and it never looks the same as it will in real life on metal and so they have these uh not tiny little paint chips like my experience with paint chips in the past for cars was that they were in the booklets um painted little squares like two inch squares but tesla has these sort of mini car shaped sort of flat things uh they're probably like eight or 10 inches by four or five inches and they've got the paint colors on them and they're hanging on the wall and you can just take it off the wall and then they've got all the leather uh with a little bit of tufting on it so you can sort of feel it um and they've got the the headliner options and so the the goal was that you would 
pick all of those off the wall and then you would those screens that they have there's some plasma screens they're actually touch screens and they're connected to the design studio so you can sort of make your car there and save it and then they've got like 85 inch plasmas that are usually running a loop of of tesla uh, promotional videos but apparently they can beam your car over to it and they have all the different um makeups in in different uh contexts so they have like the cars at night uh on the street on a racetrack so you can sort of <laughs> see what your car's configuration would be on this big 85 inch touchscreen uh in stuck the store. in traffic at a toll booth i don't think they have that one yeah um <laughs> and then uh you can save it and uh save it to a tesla account so that you could um go home look at it keep looking at it and then eventually decide to put it down a deposit and 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 buy it so yeah the I, I really like seeing all those options over there and uh, taking a look at them. So I think that's been, I, I always see some people looking at them and then they have all the wheels too right. on display. Yeah, it's very friendly for exploration. Like it's a, it's all very exploratory. You can, uh, you know, if you are buying one, you can kind of be more confident in what you're picking and buying. And if you're not, well, you know, you're just playing around with it and it's a very low pressure, uh, well, no pressure uh, kind of environment, which is nice. Yeah, and they have wall signs on uh, sort of big, um, similar to what the Apple stores will have, showing off new product, but a little bit more in-depth. So they'll talk about autopilot on some of the walls. They'll talk about uh, the energy products, which they now have in the stores. Um, So they've got the power walls, and they've got uh, power walls on the wall, so you can see what those look like. And then they've got uh, big graphics uh, explaining some of the key marketing messages. Um, and, and then, yeah, just and then gen- this is where they're going to have some sort of solar city installation yeah. too. Is that what you were saying? Yeah. So they're eventually going to have the solar panel, uh, examples here and the solar roof tiles in the stores is what we expect. Um, and so the goal will be, if you want to buy any of the solar products, you could buy them in the store as well. And so the efficiency of the stores will be, uh, you know, higher from Tesla's point of view, cause they'll be able to sell other expensive products. Um, and, and many of the stores hold a few cars. So before they just had all Model S's. And then when the Model X came out, most of the stores switched out one of their three or four cars for a Model X. And now these much larger deal, uh, deal much, uh, sorry. Now some of the larger stores actually have uh, four or five on display. And so the expectation is that one or two of those will be switched out for Model 3s when those uh, become available. Um, so I think the Stanford store has three vehicles in it. So I yeah, there's three, and then they have like, I think like four or so in the parking lot for for the test drives because they do like so. So yeah, when I was there, it was actually to test drive one of the Model Xs that they had, and um, yeah, it was really nice going in. They were, I was like, I'm here for a test drive, and they like looked at their pad and they're like, Mike, and I'm like, Hi, yeah, that's me, and they had me fill out a waiver on the iPad. Yep, digitally. They, yeah, digitally, and then they just used that same iPad to just take a photo of my license. And that was it. We were we were then walking out. We walked out to the, um, it was like one of the first few parking spots in the uh, parking lot right outside from the backside of the store. And they had like a little velvet rope around there, <laughs> around those spots. And they just undid the velvet rope. So it felt a little bit like I was, you know, going into the club for the night. Uh, and yeah, we just pulled out and, and went for a, for a ride from there. Yeah. And then when you come back, they have uh, Max, IMAX on, on white, uh, polished tables and then they'll walk you through options if you want to talk to them about options for configuring a vehicle show you what you were just driving what options it had 
And then um, for me, they, they, the, the woman who was our co-pilot and helping us out gave us her card um, and said to reach out if we had any questions. And I've heard from her maybe once or twice um, since then. Uh, yeah, I got know. on the. We're on the mailing list definitely because I, I get the the uh, little announcements or something. But it's not, it's not anything uh, anything uh, too bad. Nothing um, gratuitous. Right, right. It's not aggressive. And uh, yeah, I thought it was interesting too that they they straight up asked me like, are you are you uh, like in the market for buying anything, or are you just like, is this just educational? I thought it was interesting that they used the word educational too because it's not like, are you just like goofing around or browsing or something? It was it was very clear that you know they were. They were framing the conversation very, very uh, generously. Yeah, and I, I thought also that um, the the two folks that I'd had test drives with were were quite knowledgeable about the car. Um, I didn't ask them a ton of questions about it because I I knew a lot about it, but they seemed uh, relatively well informed about the cars and enthusiastic about them. And yeah, they weren't pushy. So yeah. I think if I was obviously less educated about Tesla. Um, I would have learned a fair amount about them and, and they were, yeah, just excited about it. So a generally younger team there, they, they call them product specialists. They're not on commission. They've hired a lot of folks who were Apple employees, Apple geniuses. Um, not that many people who were in the car, car world, except for some of the managers of the stores. Um, so it's definitely more of a, of a techie retail job than a, uh, car dealership job with the slick hair and wearing a, a baggy suit <laughs> kind of setup. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you're not worrying about making your quota for the month. Yeah. I mean, uh, they certainly, they still have uh, targets, um, but they are intended to be uh, judged based on overall store performance in the long run and then how they're doing again, sort of longer term lead quality. Um, so are, are the people they're talking to doing test drives or is a good amount of those test drives turning into uh, into actual purchases. Why are people saying they don't want to buy the car uh, if they opt not to buy one? Um, doing competitive research, understanding what other cars you're thinking of buying. Um, so they they're not quite the same uh, level because Tesla gets a lot of other benefit out of having this store available to customers um, because it's very unlikely you're going to buy a Tesla without at least having seen one or test driven one so they know they kind of need to provide that service yeah and it keeps the sort of aspirational nature keeps building the aspirational nature of their brand too right like you yeah. might walk by the coach store you don't necessarily own a coach bag but i don't know maybe when you get your year-end bonus you go get that coach bag yep which happens to be right next door to the tesla store in true Stanford, which is why that popped in my head but yeah there you go it worked <laughs> the branding worked and i one other thing to mention too i think exactly to that point is that tesla currently doesn't do any paid advertising so they're not using marketing dollars today to do multinational ad buys for the super bowl or on you know uh sunday night football or anything like that so where many uh, every other major car dealership a car manufacturer does. And so they're building their brand mass market um, because they don't necessarily control the dealerships where Tesla owns their stores. And so they see that as a, as a marketing uh, component as well. So I think that also helps reduce some of the burden of the direct sales per store. Um, and also they're clearly not as efficient as they will be when model three is available. I mean, right. they're only selling you know, at a run rate now of 100,000 vehicles a year, uh, Model 3 will clearly eclipse that uh, pretty 
in pretty quick order uh, and already is is uh, supply constrained and not demand constrained. So I think once they have a Model 3 in there, it's going to be bananas. I mean, all of them are going to be bananas all the time. <laughs> well, it'll be interesting to see how they're... I would even be a little more uh, interested in how their service network deals with it, just because even if you figure up a, a linear scaling of vehicles, that's going to be a drastic increase in the amount of service, even if they are as reliable as the existing models. But then if you take into account that this is a brand new model, it'll probably be, I mean, I would imagine slightly less reliable and probably have slightly more service incidents than uh, a more established model. So that seems like something that they would need to focus on. And something we'll speak about in our next episode, actually. So you teed (laughs) us up well there. Uh, Next episode, we'll talk about service, uh, how Tesla thinks about service what it costs to service your car, what it's like, um, and yeah, how they're going to be preparing for Model 3. So, you know, in the context of Model 3 for stores, they're continuing to build more and more stores. It helps them sell more Model S's and Model X's. It gets more people exposed to Tesla as a brand, as you just said, um, and clearly has helped create demand for Model 3. Uh, I know personally, having test-driven both the cars, I was completely sold on wanting a Tesla now as my next car, um, there really isn't anything else that would be able to sway me from that at this point, having driven one, <laughs> driven two now. So even though I'm not going to buy a Model S or X, I know sort of how that technology will transfer to the Model 3 and, and why that will be good. Uh, and I know I can go look at one. And, you know, every time I'm at Stanford uh, where, you know, the store is, I, I pop in and look at it and I know about the cars already. I don't need to, I've sat in them. I don't need to do it, but I just want to. Uh, so I think there's clearly lots of people who, who do that uh, as Definitely. well. I feel like we should also clarify, we mean the Stanford Shopping Center, which is a upscale outdoor yes. shopping mall immediately adjacent to the Stanford University campus in Palo Alto, but it's not actually on the university campus. That's true. That would be very unusual. But um, it is, it's a very upscale and, and futuristic area. I mean, I think I mentioned this in our in our Model X episode, but yeah, I went for a test drive in a Model X and it drove itself for most of the test drive, which was very futuristic. And then I walked out of the Tesla store and immediately was confronted by a robotic autonomous mall cop rolling through the mall on its own. So the whole thing had a very Jetsons feel to it. Yeah, we're living in the future. Um, So where can people uh, share their own experiences and questions about the Tesla stores and galleries uh, if they if they so desire, Mike. Yeah, if you'd like to compose a tweet, you could tweet at us at The Tesla Show. Uh, you can hit up our website at theteslashow.com where we will have episodes, comments on each episode, and a feedback form uh, that you can use to get in touch with us. And if uh, subreddits are more your thing and you'd like to upvote us, you can hit us up at r slash Show, which is our lovely subreddit that has uh, all of our episodes. Yes, and uh, we will be taking a break um, in the next week uh, in observance of the holidays and hoping Santa brings a hoping Santa can fit that Model S down my chimney. Yeah, that would be nice. Uh, also, I need to get a chimney. That too. Uh, so um, we will be back most likely in about two weeks as you are listening to this, unless you're binge listening a year or so in the future. And in otherwise, case, we're already back. A, just skip ahead. You've got no time <laughs> delay. It's amazing. All right. Talk to you later, Mike. All right. Bye, Kel.